0: Welcome to another Say No, K-N-O-W.org podcast. We discuss all things drug-related, including policy, crime, and research. We talk to professionals, researchers, and people with lived experience and discuss ideas on how we can make things just a little bit better. The Canadian Research Initiative of Substance Misuse has supplied funding to allow this podcast to take place. Our Say No initiative is part of the Chrism Prairies Network. Please check out all the incredible work they are doing in the field of addiction and research at chrismprairies.ca. Again, that's chrismprairies.ca. Please note that the views and opinions expressed within our podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Crism or any of their members. The views in this podcast also do not necessarily represent the views of my employer or any organization I am associated with. And the same goes for all of our guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and head over to our Facebook page under Facebook backslash SayNoOrg or tweet us at SayNoOrg. Welcome to this episode of the SayNo.org podcast. That's K-N-O-W for those who are just tuning in for the first time. I'm sitting here today with a very good friend of mine we met a few years ago, uh, Tina Thibault. Welcome to the episode for you. (laughs)
1: Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here.
0: We were introduced uh, through a mutual friend when we started doing some presentations. Was it Matt or or
1: was it uh, Tabby or Uh, Mary?
0: Probably Mary. Mary. Yeah. Although I do know both of them, but uh, yeah, yeah, they're wonderful. (laughs) They are great people. So we started doing uh, drug presentations to the community. I would kind of provide sort of the knowledge from the street, what's going on with the drugs themselves, and then. It's great to have people with lived experience also share their stories and perspective. You were more than happy and willing to come on board and share your incredible story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I saw a Facebook post recently and it said, I show my scars so other people know that they can recover.
0: Oh, wow. That's uh, that's a really good post.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Tina, this takes a lot of bravery. And I, I respect you so much for the work that we've done together. And I've heard your story so many times, every time I learn something new. And so I'm, I'm really... What do you learn? What do I learn? Well, for humility is one. Um, and definitely the, the point that you, you made before, like we don't choose where we were born. I could have just as easily been born in your shoes. You could have been born in my shoes and our lives probably would have looked the same, just reversed. Yeah. And so I think that's a that's a big thing I always take home. But you started off with a different deck of cards than most people.
1: Yeah. I Well, honestly, I think, unfortunately, the truth is, I think a lot of people are born with those same cards. They are, yeah. I think uh, that's why we have maybe, you know, we have so many hurting people and so much addiction out there because a lot of people are are getting dealt cards that they're not, there's maybe not enough resources for people to... To know how to deal with to deal with their upbringing and and to know how to maybe even access the resources that are out there currently.
0: Right. So how, how did life start for you, Tina?
1: Well, my mother was an alcoholic. Um, I was born six weeks premature with fetal alcohol. I bounced around with my mom to foster care the first two and a half years of my life, and then she finally put me up for adoption. I was placed into a home with four brothers. A mom and a dad. Unfortunately, the adoptive home uh, was not healthy, um, it was dysfunctional, it was full of abuse of all different kinds. It, it was a hard uh, place to live. And then when I was in grade two, I confided in my teacher and I was pulled into foster care due to things that I had disclosed to her. And I went into a foster home and I met these wonderful people and they were so amazing. They um uh, I was terrified. I looked like a three-year-old. They said when I went to them, I was seven years old. I wore a 3X. I was so tiny and afraid. And these people were strange. They didn't hit me. They didn't yell at me and they freaked me right out. And they said that I was wild. Like the first three weeks that I lived there, I chased their dog endlessly around the house and they'd walk into a room and I'd scream and run to the other side of the house. But slowly, slowly they gained my trust and... I fell madly in love with these people and I wanted to be with these people forever and ever and ever. And they sat me down one day and said, you know, we want to adopt you. And I was happy. I was, I just, things were good. And for whatever reason, it's an issue that still, it doesn't have closure for me because there's no answers to my questions. But social services made the decision that I was going to go back home. And that I wasn't going to be adopted by these people. And that has forever changed my entire life.
0: So did you get sent back home? Yeah, I did. To your mom? Yeah. your birth mom?
1: No, not to my birth mom, to my adoptive home.
0: Oh, to the adoptive home. Okay.
1: So three more years of a lot of abuse and hurt and not a good living situation. And in grade six, I was growing up enough that I was starting to realize that what was going on at home, there was something wrong because the people i went to school with it just i felt different than them i knew that when i went home it was different than when they went home and i found some pictures of me in the garbage and i just knew that this this woman who was raising me was terrible and she had no kindness no love and no anything good for me mm-hmm. and things were getting increasingly worse the abuse was getting worse and i phoned social services at school to basically fight for myself. Like I think I remembered my foster parents when I was 7 somewhere deep in the back of my head and was like there were people who loved me and I was somebody and I was treated the way children should be treated and I think that stuck somewhere with me and I think that's what gave me the you know the gusto to phone social services and say hey this is my day to day life like help me out here.
0: So what kind of abuse was it, were you facing in this home?
1: everything <laughs> there was physical mental emotional sexual all of the abuse um most of it was f- from my mom um my brother had um sexually abused me when i was um 5 6 and 7 oh man and from my mom i always thought my mom was you know the biggest biggest of the abuse because it was just so much and it was every day and it was all the time and it was a lot of physical pain wooden spoons broken over me and my hair being torn out and being dragged across the room and drinking when she was mad and would call me a liar, would pour me a glass of water and dish soap and have me drink it. And She uh,
0: should pour you what, sorry?
1: Water and dish soap. Oh. And uh, yeah, drink it. And uh, so I've got memories, like a lot of the memories I'm really disconnected from, uh, I can just talk about them, but I don't really connect with them. But there's a few memories that are really etched in there that I'll never forget. My mom had this junk food drawer, and we were not supposed to go in there. And my brother got gutsy one day and decided he was going to steal a butter tart. And my mom came after me right away, and I, I wouldn't be stupid enough <laughs> to dare steal from her. Right. And uh, she's like, you did this. And I was like, no, I didn't. I didn't. She was like, Liar. So I got a glass of dish soap and usually she would leave and I'd put a little bit of it in my mouth. So I had the look on my face and I'd dump it down my heat register. And that day, for whatever reason, she didn't leave the room and she filled that glass up to the top. And she said to me, if you puke that up, you're going to lick it up. And I remember just thinking, just do it fast. Just chug it fast. And I tried and I got about halfway down and it was all over my floor. And uh, she wasn't kidding. She had I me mean, on my hands and knees, and I remember my brother walking by and looking like he was gonna throw up. Oh, Tina. And uh, I mean, I don't realize how horrifying this is for other people to hear because it was my every. It was, it, it was just my life. Just like,
0: how it was then. Oh man.
1: Yeah. So there will never be yellow dish soap in my house ever. <laughs> no, I imagine <laughs> not. Yeah. Yeah, and it took. I mean, I had hatred hatred pure hatred for this woman when I was about four years old she walked out of the bathroom one day and she walked past me and I remember mentally stabbing her in the back and I came up with this fantasy I guess to kind of deal with everything where I would put her in a wooden chair and I would take a rope and I would tie her to the chair and please don't judge me for
0: no, there is no judgment from my part <laughs>
1: I would tie her to a chair and I wanted to rip out all the hairs on her head, the way she yanked my hair. I wanted to yank all of her hair out, but right. all of it was gone. I wanted to cover her whole body, head to toe, with with bruises from wooden spoons that she broke on my body. And mostly, mostly, I wanted to pour dish soap down her throat and watch her choke to death on it.
0: Yeah, well, that's not surprising.
1: And I pictured that so many times throughout my life growing up. And it was it scared me how vivid that picture was to me and how terrible my hatred for her was and I remember making a choice at some point I don't remember how old I was but I remember making a choice and a promise to myself that I was never ever ever going to be like her that I didn't want to be that hateful and that cruel and that bitter
0: right well you clearly aren't (laughs)
1: i don't know thursdays (laughs)
0: yeah um wow so so how old how old was that or how old were you at that part of your life when you were
1: oh god well it was like it stopped when i was 12 because i was in grade six and phone social services and was like enough like this woman's gonna kill me right there's something seriously wrong here and um
0: Were the other siblings in the home her birth kids or were they adopted as well? Yeah, they
1: were all her biological children. When I was living in the foster home that I had been, you know, I was removed when I was seven. When I was gone, she was pregnant with a girl and I didn't know that she was pregnant. And I came home to a new baby sister because of the rules that she had, a lot of strange rules. One of them was that I was not allowed to speak or interact with her and it devastated me because i always wanted a sister all mm. my life and i had a sister and i was not allowed to interact with and that's that's kind of messed up but <laughs> um yeah so they were all her children and you know i don't keep in touch with them i i know they're out there i i've i just when i left the family i was basically kind of like it didn't happen
0: right well it's that's a hard thing to uh to relive even in in memory.
1: Yeah. And I'm sure, and I mean, I've tried to talk to some of my brothers and they have different opinions about, you know, Oh, that never happened, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, that doesn't even make sense because then why would I have been removed from the home? Like, I, I don't know, maybe they just have a different, their own perception. Yeah.
0: Have you ever thought about trying to make sense of like, I mean, I, I'm an adoptive parent. I've adopted my son who also was born with a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and parenting him has been a challenge, to say the least. Uh, he's doing really well now, but it seems odd that someone would choose this path of adoption and not, you know, for the for the for the purpose of abusing a child this much. Like it seems odd, like it because it's kind of a it's kind of a decision, you know. My wife and I made together, and we took it very seriously. And we thought, do we have the resources in place to survive this? Because we knew what we we're getting ourselves into.
1: Honestly, I don't think, like, I don't think my parents knew about fetal alcohol. No. I don't think they were aware or um, had any understanding. Right. Um, and if they did know I was fetal alcohol, they obviously had no tools or, um, I mean, they weren't the kind of parents who were like, let's put her in sports and right. let's get her in activities and let's let's culture this child and, and bring her up and, and right. cultivate good things in her. There, there was none of that. There was no support. There was no... It was just a lot of anger and frustration. and
0: Why do you think they chose to adopt?
1: Honestly, I I wish I've asked myself that a million times. In fact, if my mother was standing in front of me, I I would like to ask her, why? Why did you even adopt me? Did you adopt me for the sole purpose of having a human being to take out your life frustration? I will never understand. I have come to the conclusion that she had four boys and she wanted a girl. okay. So she had a girl, but in this is, again, I'm left to my own understandings of trying to piece things together. I've concluded that maybe I wasn't the little girl that she wanted because I was not the, you know, I remember her making me have my hair perfect and little frilly dresses and socks. And she just wanted this little doll. And that wasn't me. I like dirt and rocks. (laughs) And, and I was, you know, I was probably a handful. I was fetal alcohol. I, I could imagine that, I mean, things as an adult with FAS are hard sometimes. I can't even imagine how difficult maybe it would be to raise a child like that. Right. I mean, you've said yourself. You mean, it's it's not easy. It's to, not easy, you know. Yeah.
0: That actually reminds me. I think we should probably do an episode just on fe- fetal alcohol syndrome because it is it does affect so many people in our community. And I've got some connections at the center here that I'm thinking we should do an episode in the future. That'd be great. Yeah. And actually to have you as one of the, as the interviewer there, I think would make the most sense. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can set that up. That'd be cool. So going back to your story, Tina, um, obviously your childhood wasn't exactly roses. So what happened in your, in your formative like teenage years?
1: Uh, it was, uh. I wouldn't say a lot of foster care because I've heard there's a lot of people who've been in like a lot of foster care. But I lived in three different foster homes. I became a permanent ward of the government, uh, which means that social services was essentially my family. Right. So I I stayed in three foster homes. I was fortunate that I wasn't bounced around more than that. One of the foster homes, I lived out in Drake for a year on a farm. And I was abruptly moved and nobody said anything to me why. I was just moved and I found out later they were shut down and that's not my story to share, but they were okay. shut down. And uh, and then I was moved to Saskatoon and I stayed in a home for three years. They were pretty strict and it was made really clear, you know, you don't call us mom and dad. We are not your mom and dad. We are not your family. You are lucky to be living in our house and you are a foster child to not be trusted. And I lived there three years. I didn't get a key. And they had two boys, hockey and soccer. And they were never home, so I was Mm. never home. And so that kind of led me into hanging out at my friends' places. And there was a lot of drinking. And I just was without parents, really. I didn't have the guidance. I didn't have the proper guidance as a child. And then as a teenager, I didn't have really guidance either. I just Mm. kind of floating around trying to fit in at school and trying to appear like my life was normal, like everybody else. And yeah. I didn't have this crazy childhood to carry around with me and just wanted so badly to just be like everybody else. And yeah, and eventually drinking, guys, drugs.
0: That's the path you went down. Yeah. Okay, so let's fast forward. Um, Obviously, you're part of this program because you have some insight and lived experience in the world of addiction. So what kind of drugs were you into? How did you get into them?
1: Well, I mean, it started out with pot. I hung out with all the potheads in high school. I, I was always really afraid of drugs. Like before I was tainted, yeah. <laughs> basically. I was I was really afraid of drugs, and uh, I had I heard all the you know things that they'd have people come to school and be like, just say no to drugs, and drugs are scary, and it worked. I was scared of drugs, mm-hmm. but I was in high school, and I saw my friends get high every day. And they never died. And they just look like they're having so much fun. And curiosity got the best of me one day. So in grade 10, I decided, yeah, okay, let's go check this out. And my friends were dumbfounded, like, what? Like, Because they asked me every day, every day for months, like, we're going to go get high, come with us. And I was like, no. And then one day I was like, no, yeah. And they all turned around and just looked at me like, what? And I was like, yeah, come on, let's go check this out. It was a terrible day. I went and got high and I, I was terrified. I didn't know what was Wrong with me uh, when I was high. I was freaking out. It was terrible. So I didn't touch drugs for about a year. And then I dated a guy who was older than me, and they did pot. So I was smoking pot a little bit, and it, it seemed to hit me harder than other people. It seemed okay. to really mess me up. And then when I was nineteen, I uh, I met my real mom when I was fifteen. I had wrote a letter to social services and said like I want to meet my mom. This is my life, and mm-hmm. this is all I want in the world is to meet my mom. And they said okay. So I met her and I wasn't ready for that. And we got in a fight when I was 18, 19 years old. And she basically said to me, just in a moment of anger, you know, like, I don't give a fuck what you do with your life. Fuck you. And hung up. Okay. And she had no idea what those words would do to me that I didn't have the maturity to be like, oh, she's just mad. It's just a momentary thing. It just broke my heart because she was, she was the dream. She was everything. Right. And to hear those words from her, some snapped. Like I just, I was just done. I didn't care after that. And that's when pot became more of a, I'm just fitting in with my friends. Pot became everything. It was, I couldn't get up without smoking and enjoy it. I couldn't go to bed without smoking and joint. It's all I cared about. It came first and foremost to everything. It, you know, and eventually, eventually it took a long time, years and years, but it led me into cocaine. Once I graduated to cocaine it it was like I I don't know I just crossed a line and the point it didn't matter and eventually I uh, I think I was being dealt meth I don't, I don't know it was god awful it tasted horrible and it, the high was horrible staying at some pretty sketchy houses being around some sketchy people and
0: uh, so you snorting cocaine or injecting or no
1: smoking, I I uh, the first crack? time I ever did cocaine I snorted it and I don't recall that being incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the next day, uh, this guy's mom put a crack pipe in my mouth and I had one hit and I, um, it's the best thing in the world. And uh, I'm not saying that for people to go out and try. Don't, no. don't. It's not. <laughs> you're not you're, you're not
0: the first person that has told me that. And obviously, I mean, if, if drugs didn't make us feel so good, they wouldn't be a problem today, would they?
1: Right. Was, <laughs> absolutely. So yeah,
0: you're not the first person to say that crack is an incredible feeling that it gives you.
1: Yeah, there's nothing quite quite like that. And uh, there's definite moments in my life like I'm clean now, but there's definite moments where I'm like, wow. You know, sometimes you, I mean, I don't have them anymore, but I used to have what people call using dreams and using dreams are where you're in your dream and it's very vivid and you're getting high in your dream and then you wake up abruptly. I've had those dreams where I'm standing at the stove. I don't know why I'm always standing in a stove, but then I'm about to take, a uh, hit off my pipe and I'm holding my breath and I wake up and it's a, it's a 50-50. It's like Fifty percent. oh, damn. I wanted that high so damn bad, <laughs> and the other fifty percent is like, holy fuck! Thank God it was just a dream.
0: Right, right.
1: <laughs> but there are fewer and fewer. Like I haven't had a using dream in a while, and um, I, I'm just I'm in a weird spot right now because I've been I've been clean for two years. You know, life is good. Right. Uh, and I I don't know if a lot of people can relate to this, but I, I'm at a point right now where. I'm kind of looking around every corner. I'm kind of holding my breath. I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop because oh, it's been a year. I've got my own place now. Things are just lining up for me right. and I'm miserable. And my mentor's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, honestly, do you want to know what's wrong? Everything is so good. Just and usually you, when ex- shit is so good, some shit hits the fan. Well,
0: you're you're not accepting the fact that you deserve things to be good.
1: I guess maybe, but it's just been a pattern in my life, right? Yeah, where exactly. it's like Where things are really good, all of a sudden, some major shit goes down. Mm-hmm. And so right now, I feel like I'm like I'm on guard, right? I'm right. like, okay, what's going down? What's going down? So it, it's a weird process. <laughs> I'm trying to just enjoy it and keep telling myself, like, no, things maybe things are just going to be good They're here. They're going to be good,
0: yeah. And you deserve things to be good. I'm sure there's, I'm sure there is a time where, I mean, I've seen it so many times at work where people self sabotage their own happiness because. They don't feel that they deserve it.
1: Yeah, and it's a weird thing because I hear I hear you when you say you deserve it, but I don't believe it.
0: Oh, I'm telling you, you deserve it. Of all the people <laughs> I know, you deserve
1: well, you deserve you. it. I
0: mean, we just heard we just heard the upbringing you've had, and to see where you are today, I mean, it's it, it, I don't know if I could make it out of that. Like it, that takes the kind of character that a lot of people can't recover out of a childhood like that.
1: Oh, well, I think people can. They just need to have the, There, there needs to be somebody. There needs to be even just one person. Uh, this is what I think because the day that I quit, I'll tell you an interesting story. The day that I quit, I was supposed to be meeting with my mentor that day. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting in a truck house, and I had been high for about I don't know eighteen hours at that point. And off uh, the crack at that time. No, I think I was on meth. Whatever they were feeding me, it was yeah. just garbage. It was gross. Were you smoking it or injecting? Smoking it, smoking and it. it was terrible. Yeah, it was like really jittery. Ugh, it was gross. But um, so she had phoned me. I was supposed to be meeting with her, but I was at this house out of my mind, and so I rejected the call. And then something. I I don't know, not audio, but just in my mind was like, call her back. Mm -hmm. So I called her back and I said to her, can you come pick me up? And she was like, yeah, where are you? And I said, I'm not at home. And she was like, nope, that's okay. Like, where are you? I will come pick you up. And I just know, I just know inside of myself that had she not, had she judged me that day, had she said, oh, like, that's not my job, whatever. I probably would have died that day because I wouldn't have stopped smoking. I would have just been like... Nobody cares. No one cares you know? about me. Yeah. Oh, wow. But she didn't. She picked me up and she never judged me and she didn't, you know, and I was really out of my mind that day and uh, I was like, <laughs> I was all over the place. And, so, uh, so
0: you must have already been, if you already had a mentor at that stage, you must have already been starting to reach out to the support community.
1: Yeah. Like one thing I was told throughout my life is that I was so resourceful that I just had a way of. I, I just it was something I think that my my foster parents had instilled in me because they said if something's wrong tell somebody right. and if they don't listen tell somebody else and just keep talking until somebody listens to you so I guess I kind of got some resourcefulness from that because I would just tell people like this is my life and this is what's going on with me and I've been told like you're so articulate and that has helped me move forward in my life because I just I'm so Open, I guess, about right. who I am and and what I've my perception my perception of of everything that I've been through and that I guess I'm I'm just good at reaching out and just keep telling people and eventually the right people fall into your fall into your life if you if you don't give up and I think there was a part of me that I didn't I didn't want to give up I just needed somebody to believe in me I needed somebody to to be like hey yeah you're worth it
0: right so when you were at you know your your height of drug abuse. Um, were you working at the time or like, did you have, how were you making any money? The streets
1: I was.
0: (laughs) Working the streets. That's how your income.
1: Very well, thankfully, very briefly. And thankfully I, uh, nothing terribly traumatic happened out of that. But yeah, for a brief while I was, um, unfortunately, I mean, I'm not proud of it. Nobody is really proud to be like, oh yeah, I was on 20th, but, uh, that was my reality for a while. So you're
0: like prostitution is what we're talking about or? Yeah. Yeah, Okay.
1: Yeah. And uh, I had a house that was nearby and I basically bounced between standing on the street corner, going through the motions to get the money because I was basically telling myself the whole time, I'm about to go get high. I'm about to go get high. And that's right. what would bring me through whoever I was encountering. And uh, and then I would go get high and then I would go back to the street and I just bounce back and forth. And I don't even know. It was such a blur. I, I honestly don't know how long uh, it could have been a month. It could have been six months. I really, I don't know. It's just a blur.
0: So when, when it came to that moment where you were able to accept recovery or move to recovery, how did that, how did that happen? How did that come about?
1: I was living in a mental health care home in Sutherland and I was in a really dark place. I had got a call from Health Canada that said you are hepatitis C positive and my world stopped. Because when they phoned and said this is Health Canada or you know whatever Sask Health, okay, um, my heart my heart just dropped and they said you need to come in, we need to talk to you and I said what is it? Because I was thinking HIV,
0: right? And
1: she said no, like you need to come in and I said no, like you need to tell me what is it? And she said you're Hep C positive and my world stopped dead so, cold.
0: So is that something that was probably contracted during prostitution?
1: Like um yeah because I I was no 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 like I was briefly uh I had met these girls and uh, to this day I wonder what went through my head when I handed my arm over to some girls for her to shoot her up to shoot me up the first time I don't know what in the world went through my head that day but also oh, uh, a
0: dirty needle most likely.
1: Yeah and there was so I was really briefly in the in the needle thing and I I was playing around with needles I I was so so stupid. I didn't know what I was doing and I got myself really sick. And so, yeah, they called me and the day that they called me, I quit everything cold Turkey. I was so sick. I remember lying in my bed and I remember shaking for about three weeks and just sweating and throwing up and just being really sick. And then uh, I moved to a a care home, like a mental health care home. It was the darkest time of my life. I was depression. Doesn't even, (laughs) that's not even the, it was just so dark. It was so dark. Mm. And, uh, the people there were, you know, were terrible. Like they didn't hit us, but their family would come over and we would sit and have Thanksgiving and they wouldn't speak to us and they wouldn't look at us. Like we literally did not exist. Right. And and how does that help a person, anybody, like to, to be completely, anyways. Uh, yeah. So I was in a dark area and I didn't use for about eight months. And then I relapsed and I went back to that old house. I, I remember watching this lady digging around in her leg. Uh, with a needle and just sitting there like it was really normal and her taking my money and and just waiting for the drugs and then it was different. There was something different because I hadn't used in about eight months and it just, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the same. And I remember when I left that house that night, I was like, I'm never going to come back to this house. Wow. And I never have. Never been back to that house. And uh, yeah, sometimes I wonder about the people there, you know, if they're still around and yeah. if they got help. and.
0: Hmm. So when you pretty much quit cold turkey after you got the news, you had hep C?
1: Yeah, for a while. For a while. For a while. Okay. <laughs> for a while. A bit- like I did really good for a while. I uh, I was off it for about two years, I think. Like you you have to bear with me because my yep. memory is so scattered. Uh, I think it was about two years. And I somehow got the thought in my head that it was a smart adult decision to buy an eight ball. I thought I had the money for it. I wasn't putting myself out financially and I couldn't shake the thought and that it was, you know, well, this is well thought out and I'll be responsible and I just go do this eight ball and I'll be done with it. And that led me on a two year spiral of, you know, pawning everything that I had, you know, my one eight ball turned into a two year blitz of a mess.
0: Was that an eight ball of crack? No, no,
1: no. Just wanted to get an eight ball of Coke. Of Coke, okay. And well, yeah, to smoke it. So, yeah, I guess technically so, yeah, crack, it would be. Yeah. yeah, that was my drug of choice. Okay. Uh, there was, yeah, nothing that to topped that. But um, yeah, it was terrible. I, re- I remember, <laughs> I mean, I'm really throwing myself under the bus and putting myself out here <laughs> by yeah, just. You are. Telling the... But this is the this truth is a, of addiction. Yeah, this is and the I, truth. People and if need this to is going to help people to be brutally, deadly honest about... You know, I have a saying. I was too smart and too stupid to do drugs because I was. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what I was doing with these drugs. I had no business playing. I was like a child with matches. Like, right. no idea. So right. dumb. But also too smart. Right. You know, I was smarter than addiction. Eventually, I saw through... Um, it was a charade. it was it was, you know, I knew that that there had to be something better out there that that was not what God had my life set out to be. I wasn't I didn't go through everything I went through to be a drug addict and right. die in a gutter. That wasn't what my life was for. Hmm. I knew probably since I was twelve that my calling was to help other people. Little did I know that my life and that drugs was going to be the way. Right. That it was all going to happen like that. So, I mean, I, as I'm saying this, I'm like, God, people are going to hear this and be like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> but no, I mean, I'm okay to be open and honest about it and just be like, yeah, this is the reality of what I did. And I hope I never have to live my
0: life again. <laughs> oh, no, I hope, I hope not as well. So, when you were, um, after you kind of did that two year blitz again, what is it that got you? To- to the point, like, how did you get from basically this in a two-year drugged out stupor living in and out of a group home, pawning all your stuff, to now, I mean, we're sitting in your living room, you know, <laughs> you're an artist, you're mu- very musically you're talented. I mean, you play the piano all the time. Oh, by the Facebook grace of page. God,
1: seriously, like <laughs> <laughs> there's something bigger out there than me. And, and he had me and he was not going to let me go and, and be like, you're going to die a drug. And I, No, there was something and it's bigger than me. Cause I'm not that powerful. <laughs> right. I'm not bigger than addiction. I'm so, really not. <laughs> so
0: faith, so faith, you, you found, so you found faith. I
1: mean, Deb and Michael, they were my foster parents when I was seven and they were the ones who first taught me about God. And, you know, I don't want to be all preacher or whatever. This no, is, so Oh, good this is your story you this tell it. Yeah and uh but for me I mean I, I don't have an explanation. I don't know what pulled me out of it. All I can say is it was something bigger than me. I I had I guess supportive people like I said I had a mentor who, who wasn't gonna judge me and uh I remember <laughs> towards the end I, I would get high and I would stand in front of the mirror and I would just cry and yell yeah. at myself and I just I looked miserable just standing in front of a mirror high crying mm-hmm. and i kept doing that and i and i hated myself and i beat myself up about it so much and i don't know i i think i asked myself a lot why that day like why did i quit that day what finally clicked what finally just i don't know i don't know what it was i think i was just done
0: you're done with the life
1: yeah and i just knew i was gonna die i knew if i kept doing it i was gonna die
0: right right how important do you think an individual's spirituality no matter what sort of faith they they grew up in or or I don't know is it can be linked to self-esteem how how important i mean i've heard your story so I, I think i know your answer but how important is uh is faith or or spirituality in a person's road to recovery
1: it's cornerstone like it it absolutely um you, everybody's got to believe in something right. like there's got to be something. And, you know, for people who are like, oh, I don't want to hear about God. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, I just tell people who are like, oh, I don't believe in God. Well, when you close your eyes at night, you believe you're going to wake up.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you must believe in something. Oh, wow. Or you'd that's never sleep. That's a powerful line. <laughs> you'd never sleep, right? You believe when you close your eyes, you're going to wake up. Yeah. So that's a that's belief, belief in something. Yeah. Be- and, you and, you know, and God you says know what... faith is little as a mustard seed. That's all you need.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, uh, I've talked to so many people who are struggling now that I deal with day to day at work, and when they close their eyes, you know what? They probably don't. They don't know. They're not believing that they're going to wake up the next day. But they. So, but so, you
1: do. You or you'd never sleep, right? right. Like you would never sleep. Well, a
0: lot you... of them are trying not to sleep, and they're out <laughs> using meth all night, and they're on twenty-one day benders. I
1: mean, I wish. I wish I could just go and I want. I wish I had the power to heal people. I wish I had the power to just go hug somebody and and let them. If people could see. If if we could see ourselves the way other people saw us, right. I think we would be blown away because I mean it's hard for me to see the people the way people see me. Like I I don't view myself as all that or whatever, but I've seen other people were hurt and broken and I just see their beauty and good for you. Man, like I yeah, I just I want to go and help people so much and I don't know what that looks like, so I'm just a messenger. I'm just here to be see-through and honest and bold and uh and hopefully that god can just work through that and
0: yeah well i i appreciate your your honesty and i know our listeners will i mean every time you share your story at the presentations we give you know people are always coming up to us and and obviously it connected with connects with everybody on some level so thanks a lot for for sharing your story People can hear about it more. There's a couple of phenomenal blog posts that Tina's written that are up on our website. Again, it's saynoknow.org and just click on the blog post there for some more insight into Tina's life and kind of her views and and kind of her her newfound uh, perspective, I guess. So, yeah, thanks thanks for coming and sharing your story and
1: Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, I I'm more than willing to to have an open discussion about it. Really? Uh the good, the bad and the ugly, you yeah. know, because that's what people need to start talking about is this is the reality. Addiction is it's it's horrible. I I think it's uh, you know, one of Satan's good vices he's got, you know, alcohol and he's got drugs and suicide and you know evil and a lot of other things in his belts that he's that he's working on and we need to start fighting back and and you fight back with love
0: yeah love uh love and understanding and compassion and non-judgmental yeah uh interactions yeah
1: and throwing these people in jail i mean it it just makes it worse it doesn't help i mean thank god thank god i never hit a jail and i never you know had to to go that route but yeah yeah, my prayers and my my gratitude and and everything goes out to people who are still struggling because it's uh it's like you enter into another world and your your reality is so different. You can't even see reality when you're in the midst of using. Right. And I think that's what people who don't use or who have never used, they can't even imagine. It's literally like you enter into a different realm and it's not reality. It's
0: it seems like um one thing, I just talked to uh, Bill Bogart, author of a book, Off the Street, the other day. And um, there's a podcast episode with him as well for, for our listeners you can look out for. But he he said that we really need to differentiate between use and harmful use. And I think what you were talking about there, that's harmful use. Because, I mean, there are people that, you know, drink alcohol. I drink alcohol socially all the time. Right. Um, but, and, and I'm not going into a dark place, but for those that suddenly go down there and we can recognize that, okay, this is harmful use and it's harmful use that both seems to, uh, to kind of have that grasp on an individual's life where it starts healing.
1: I agree. And that, man, that actually, I agree with that a lot. That makes so much sense because there are, that is so true. Like there are some people who can go have a glass of wine and they're not going to go home and beat their kids. right? And then there's other people who should never, ever drink.
0: That's right. Yeah. And, and drugs, you know, realistically have been the same. It's only a very small percentage of drug users altogether that are causing the chaos in their own life and the life of others, but right. Um, thanks again for sharing your story, Tina, and I hope our listeners enjoyed. Feel free if you to, would
1: like to book a presentation, please feel free.
0: <laughs> yeah, you could definitely book a presentation with us um, if that interests you. Message us through the website, through Twitter at sayno.org, and as well as on our Facebook page, Facebook backslash sayno.org, and remember it's K N O W. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode.